This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 362, a conversation with Christos Gage. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 362, where we have a conversation with comics writer Christos Gage. Before we jump right into the episode, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. As I mentioned, today's episode, we have a conversation with Christos Gage. I also want to thank the uh, listeners from the Marvel Masterworks Forum for submitting questions for Christos that we were able to integrate into the episode uh it was great greatly appreciated um and uh, we look forward to getting your questions for uh, future interview subjects speaking of episode 364 coming out next week will be our conversation with jm de mateus having yet recorded the episode so if you want to get some last minute questions in uh if you can get them in before april the 11th that would be preferred because that'll be the day i have a chance to sit down with jm de mateus to discuss his uh, amazing writing career i'm sure we'll be talking spider-man um justice league um many other things he's done so much um so it'll be hard to pick just one topic and uh, i'm sure we'll go through the gamut and do what we can to go throughout his career because he's definitely had a lot of highlights uh to discuss but without further ado let's move into the uh, the main event here the real reason why everyone's here a conversation with christos gage christos thank you for joining us for uh, comic shenanigans today how you doing oh i'm doing great thanks it's my pleasure i'm glad uh, I just wanted to ask my first question. It used to be, what was your first involvement with comics? But it has now become, instead, what is the weirdest thing that you've ever signed at a comic convention? The weirdest thing? Uh, nothing all that unusual. I signed someone's iPad once because um, they mostly read comics digitally. <laughs> uh, I've signed Captain America shields, multiple um, Spider-Man masks, uh, you know, stuff like that, but I have not signed any pets or body parts. <laughs> okay. What uh, Of the comics you've, you've written, which one were you most surprised that someone, you know, had in the stack ready for you to sign? Sometimes I do promotional comics uh, that I didn't, I don't even realize are out there yet. Like, uh, I wrote an Iron Man comic that's tied into the movie universe uh, that was accompanied by the DVD of the first Iron Man movie at Walmart, and uh, I, I wasn't aware of when it was coming out, so when someone brought it to me, I, at first I was like, because generally, sometimes people bring me stuff that I didn't do, like an issue of Spider-Man that I wasn't on, and I'll say, you know, I don't mind signing this, but I didn't have anything to do with it, and they usually like say, oh, that was a mistake, My, you know, here's something else, and I think I said, I didn't do this, and the guy was like, yes, you did, <laughs> he was right, uh, <laughs> so that those are usually the ones I'm most surprised to to see or like a variant cover I didn't know existed that makes sense uh, so then let's do my old my old standby question how did you first uh, start reading comics you know I don't even remember I, I learned to read when I was three years old we were living in New York and uh, obviously back then you had the newsstands and they would have comics at kid eye level so you would bother your parents to get you some and I'm sure I started with Disney um some of the first comics that I remember reading, I have a copy of Amazing Spider-Man 161 where he fights Nightcrawler uh, that I got when I was like five and uh, Uncanny X-Men 107. Oh, wow. Uh, let's see. I remember reading a story where Aquaman's son died and I was just devastated <laughs> oh, by that. Oh, God. 
and uh, he was just a baby. Yeah, he was and, Aqua Baby, yeah. And uh, what else? Uh, I used to always want the um, creepy and eerie and related monster magazines, but my parents wouldn't let me get them because they felt they were too scary. And they were probably right. I probably would have had nightmares for eons if I had read those when I was like six years old. So, um, Although you were already reading about Aqua Baby dying, so... Yeah, I know. I don't think they knew that was in there. No, probably not. I don't think anyone expected that at the time. I know. I was like, all right, I'm done with Aquaman. This is too too intense for me. I think that's probably the only time anyone's ever said that about Aquaman. This is true. <laughs> He's too intense? He's too intense. And then what, um, what led you to eventually kind of get into comics writing? I mean, you obviously had already been working in you know television but and film, but what brought you into comics? Uh, what brought me to comics? I had always wanted to write comics, um, just didn't quite know how to get involved in it. Um, when I was like 14, I sent in a pitch to Marvel, a couple pitches, which were basically like issue-long fight scenes, and not surprisingly, they rejected them. Uh, and then in college, I submitted a couple things to DC and Image, and I got some encouraging notes back, but uh, didn't really go anywhere. And so I was, you know, I got out of film school. I've been Ruth and I, my wife and writing partner, had been working in film and TV, and uh, I got to be. I met Jimmy Palmiotti at a convention, and we got to be friends. And uh, I asked him, you know, who should I approach? what should I do to get into comics? And, and he said, are you going to be in New York anytime soon? And I said, yeah, we're shooting an episode of Law & Order SVU that Ruth and I wrote. And he said, well, let me see if I can get Dan DiDio to have a meeting with you. And he did, which I am eternally grateful for. And, and I pitched Dan a story that ended up being the first thing I ever did in comics, which was a Deadshot miniseries. What was it like, like learning to readapt your kind of writing mind to fit a comic book page and, and how that visual storytelling worked. Well, you know, I'd, I'd read comics all my life, so I don't think there was that much of a learning curve. The, the biggest thing I had to get used to was I had a, when I first started, I had a little bit of a tendency to call for too many actions in a single panel than was realistic or even possible. Like I remember on, I did a Batman Legends of the Dark Knight story where Batman was fighting Clayface Clayface 3 on the roof of Arkham Asylum and uh, I think I, I wrote um, Batman rips a gargoyle off the, the seal at the roof and throws it at Clayface and my editor Joey Cavalier was like no in one panel he rips the, the gargoyle off and in the next panel he throws it you can't do both in the same panel I was like oh yeah okay I get it and I think when you go from TV to, to comics um you're, you know, you tend to write too much dialogue uh, because there's a lot of dialogue in TV. Going the other way, in TV, your dialogue needs to be subtler because you've actually got human actors who can get across a lot in their facial expressions and their body language. So, uh, that you know, that's always something to keep in mind. You see that a lot when people are moving from one to the other. When you started doing more, I guess, picking up freelance work at Marvel and DC, um, what was it like kind of coming in and doing one-shots here and there and starting miniseries? Well, I'm 
sorry, say that again. You, you, you faded out for a second. Oh, sorry. Uh, what was it like kind of coming in uh, as a freelancer, writing the one-shots or writing the miniseries that you were kind of tackling at the time? Oh, it was, I mean, it was fun. I did the, uh, I did a Union Jack miniseries at Marvel with Mike Perkins, and we just had a great time on it. Uh, you know, when I heard Brian Bendis say this somewhere, and it's true, when you first start working for Marvel or DC, you, you expect to get fired at any second, and so you want to play with all the toys while you've got a chance. So I just tried to pack as many characters as I could into Union Jack. Uh, and so they're just – and Mike, Mike Perkins is just the wonderful, most wonderful guy and a terrific artist, and he was all for it. And so there's just like 800 characters in that Union Jack miniseries. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. Um yeah, you know, you just try to have fun and, and enjoy it while it lasts because I was pretty sure that, you know, at some point they'd be like, okay, there's been a terrible mistake. Time for you to go. How did you come to start writing the uh, World War Hulk X-Men miniseries? Uh, Andy Schmidt was my editor at on Union Jack. My very first thing at Marvel, I did a tryout. I, Tom Brevoort had read Deadshot, and I approached him at a con and said, hey, I'd love to work for Marvel. He said, I read your Deadshot. I liked it. I've got a tryout. Uh, 11 pager in Spider-Man Unlimited forget which issue it was I want to say it was 12 and uh, I did that and Andy Schmidt was the assistant editor so then he uh, put together the Union Jack miniseries with me and Mike and then from there he called me when they needed someone to do the Captain America Iron Man Casualties of War one shot from the first Civil War event when the main series was uh, delayed and uh, that was that sold really big, um, like 115,000 copies or something. And so that was cool. And then so um, Andy called me up and said, we're doing this World War Hulk event. And we don't – he was in the X-Men office. He said, we don't really have an X-Men event tie-in. And he said, do you want to do a comic called World War Hulk X-Men uh, that's three issues long? And I said – can it be just the Hulk fighting the X-Men for three issues? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, that would be awesome. <laughs> and I said, I'm not kidding. I just want to do the Hulk fighting the X-Men, all of the X-Men for three issues. He's like, let's do it. So we did it. What was and it that, like? That was, what was that it was like? Big what, also. Yeah. What was it like working with DeVito on that book? Oh, he's great. Uh, I like working with Andrea. We worked together again on, uh, on Avengers Academy and, you know, he's got a very nice sort of a, a classic clean style. Um, and he's also great with action scenes, but also with character acting. So, you know, very clear storytelling and, and, you know, you never have to worry about whether something's going to be translated into the art because he always gets it right. When uh, you were writing Annihilation Conquest Quasar, you got to kind of push the character in new directions. What was that experience kind of being more cosmic? That was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed the, uh, I got to use Super Adaptoid, who's one of my favorite villains. Uh, I liked, uh, you know, writing the relationship between Quasar and Moon Dragon. The whole idea of Moon Dragon turning into an actual dragon was something Bill Roseman came up with, and I was a little iffy on it at first. He's our uh, our editor, and then I read some of the old Defenders comics again and realized that there was a precedent for it. So I'm still not entirely sure whether that worked or not. But it was fun to just kind of go. I mean, the fun of the cosmic books is to just go wacky and, and do like crazy stuff, and uh, you know that was. That was what we did, and it was enjoyable. And people still bring me that to sign. They enjoyed it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It was a fun book. Yeah. Um, now, you also, uh, when did you start working with Dan Slott on well, assorted things, but when did your partnership kind of start? Uh, I believe 
Tom Brevoort contacted me to ask if I wanted to do a fill-in issue of Avengers: The Initiative because Dan needed um, a, you know a break. He was he had more work than he could handle because he had just joined, I believe, the the Amazing Spider-Man at the time. They had like a group. It was coming out weekly, and they had like a group. I can't remember what they called it. Uh, brand new day. Yeah, no, but uh, oh. they called they called the group. It wasn't the hive mind or something like that, but basically, yeah, it was, I can't remember you know, the core Spidey writers and Dan had joined that, and it was a lot of uh, it was more than he anticipated. You know, it was more than just writing X amount of issues. It was also keeping up with what everyone else was doing. So, I wrote this issue of uh, Avengers: The Initiative, which ended up being issue thirteen, which introduced this character Butterball, um, and uh, everyone really liked it, and. Dan said, asked me would I would be interested in coming on board as, as co-writer uh, in general and because he felt that we had very similar sensibilities. We both liked sort of the obscure corners of the Marvel Universe and telling character-based stories and I was like, sure. So um, the issue that I wrote didn't come out until 13 but we, Dan and I, our first issue was an annual and then issue 8 so we co-wrote issue eight through twelve, and from then on till the end of till he left after issue twenty, uh, and then I wrote it myself until issue thirty-five, and then it sort of morphed into Avengers Academy, which ran another forty issues, uh, which was awesome because so for about seventy-five issues, I got to write an Avengers branded comic, but that used all kinds of obscure characters, and I got to you know any kind of wacky character I wanted to use like Johnny Guitar from the obscure villain from the Dazzler series I could use so it was great I got to write Taskmaster just had a ton of fun what uh, what characters from Avengers Initiative were kind of a, the biggest surprise to you that you enjoyed writing that you wouldn't have expected uh let's see I mean I wasn't surprised that I enjoyed writing the villains because they're always fun uh I enjoyed writing Tigra I enjoyed writing uh the Bengal was a character that I didn't think I would enjoy writing, but Dan had given him a wife and a kid, and I, I liked the idea of this guy who had been a you know a martial arts guy and, and come out of war uh, and now was a, a family man. I thought that was cool. Um, I liked some of the characters that uh, that uh, Dan had created, um, like Komodo and mm-hmm. Hardball, who, who was a Hydra sleeper agent. Uh, and then, of course, I like Butterball. I put him in there. Uh, I had a soft spot for him. And uh, Taskmaster, I just had a ton of fun with, but I knew I would enjoy that. When um, when Initiative ended and you ended up bringing out um, Avengers Academy, what was kind of your inspiration for some of those characters? Because you, you basically had a, a blank slate to kind of do what you wanted. Yeah, I mean, uh, Reptile had existed before, but he was in the, a cartoon, so it was, uh, you know, a- adapting him to the comics. But the other characters, the other students, uh, Mike McCone and I created, and that was great because initially I was like, so what characters do you think I should put in? And they are like, we think you should create brand new characters. So I already knew that for me the premise I wanted to do with Avengers Academy was like the broken Avengers teaching the broken kids uh so i tried to come up with characters whose powers might have some sort of inherent quality that might create a risk of them going bad becoming villains so with metal like he couldn't 
feel anything. Uh, with hazmat, she was literally confined to her suit. Um, you know, uh, and then some of them, it wasn't just their powers, it was more their backstory. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I was trying to come up with characters who would be the at-risk kids of the Marvel Universe. Now, I have to ask, how do you feel about the way those characters were treated? Obviously, they, the ones, some of the ones that were used were, you know, some things happened to them, Avengers Arena, etc. How do you feel about what happened to your, basically, almost like your kids? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I knew it was coming. I didn't love it, but uh, I also wasn't mad about it because this is what happens. You create these characters for a company. Uh, you don't own them. And you want them to go out and exist beyond what you do. I mean, usually what happens when new characters are created is once the writer who uh, and, and or artist who created those characters moves on to something else, those characters just vanish into the ether because, you know, let's face it, most of the writers want to write the characters they grew up with. I'm no exception to that. I want to write Spider-Man and, you know... Um, the Avengers that I grew up with, and you know, I don't want to write some some character that somebody just came up with in the past five years. Um, I mean, sometimes I do, but you know, for the most part. So that you know, I, I just like that they are continuing to be used, and a number of them have shown up in uh, the Lego Avengers game that just came out, which was really cool. Um, so you know, it's it's sort of a bittersweet thing. Like on the one hand, you hate when bad things happen to them. On the other hand, that's what the stories are about, and. It's comics, so no one is dead forever. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty philosophical. I'm pretty zen about it. Uh, when, uh, or sorry, did you pitch or were you pitched on writing the X-Men Spider-Man miniseries? That was one where Andy Schmidt, who was in the X-Men office, and Steve Wacker, who was in the Spider-Man office, uh, called me up and said, there's, there's this artist, Mario, Mario Alberti, uh, who's you know Italian and well known over there, and he wants to do some stuff with Marvel, and uh, he wants to do something with Spider Man and the X Men, and uh, their idea was to do a four issue miniseries where each one is set in a different point in Marvel history, and they knew I had a pretty good knowledge of Marvel history, um, and they, that I'd be able to tie the stories together. So that's what I did, and uh, it was well received. So then we went on to do a Spider Man Fantastic Four. Uh, which was well received and had a great time. I love I love those books. They're beautiful. They just Mario is such a terrific artist. He's got that lush European style, you know, influenced by Mobius and and the great European artists uh, Manara. Um, and it's just you know, there's they're beautiful stuff. And I love the fact that each one has a different time period. So like in the fantastic, like each X Men one had a different X Men team. And then um, I love getting to write. Ben Riley, like I wrote one that said in the 90s era when Ben Riley was Spider-Man. That was a lot of fun because you had this knowledge that he was going to later die, so it was very poignant, I thought. Um, and the Fantastic Four was great fun because we got to do, we'll use the Art Adams new Fantastic Four. So, just had a ball the whole way through. How did you come to write uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I had written an original graphic novel called Area 10 for Vertigo that Chris Somney drew and Scott Alley at uh, Dark Horse read it and liked it and he approached me as I like to say in the bathroom at San Diego, not San Diego <laughs> C2E2 the very first C2E2 convention and uh, said hey we're getting the rights to Angel back would you be I think you'd be good at that would you be interested 
And I said, sure, but I've never seen Buffy or Angel TV shows. Uh, and he was like, well, watch some of them and see if it's something you'd want to do. So I started watching them, and I loved them. And uh, I said, sure. The funny thing is I had met Joss Whedon before on the train back from San Diego, like two or three years earlier. And I said to him, uh, I have never seen one of your shows, but I love what you're doing with Astonishing X-Men. He was appreciative, and uh, <laughs> we talked about that. I'm sure he doesn't get that that often, considering how well, widespread his shows are. I mean, since then, I've seen most of his shows, and they're all terrific. So, um, We have a listener question, which was, um, how did you get the opportunity to write on Netflix's uh, Daredevil Season 1? Well, uh, Ruth and I have been you know, writing TV as far back as the, uh, 2003, thereabouts. Um, and, uh, you know, we I had always known that Marvel was going to do some live action stuff. So um, our manager, Brian Spink, got us up to uh, uh, Megan Bradner, a terrific executive at Marvel TV, and she got it to Drew Goddard. And so Drew um, is really good friends with Brian K. Vaughn. So he called up Brian Vaughn and said, have you ever heard of uh, these guys? Have you worked with these guys? And Brian was like, no, but I'm working on this he was, at the time, he was working on Under the Dome, and his co-showrunner was Neil Baer, who had been our showrunner on Law & Order SVU. And so he asked him, and then he came back to Drew, and he said, well, Neil Baer says they wrote the episode of Law & Order SVU that Dick Wolf cites as his absolute favorite episode of the show ever. Uh, so Drew was like, all right, they must not totally suck. I'll bring them in. So he brought us in, and the funny thing is I was like, but I said to Ruth, you know, I got it. I, I, I know all the comic book stuff. I got this down. Let me do the talking. And he wasn't looking for people with comic book knowledge because he had comic book knowledge of his own. He was looking for people to bring other stuff. So with me, he was intrigued by the fact that my father had been a reporter for the New York Times in the 70s covering the mafia because he thought that would be great for the tone of the story and the Ben Urich character. And then with Ruth, she, one of the first movies she worked on was um, – uh, Last of the Mohicans, which is one of his all-time favorite movies, so they just talked, they really hit it off over that, and she has a background in politics, which was going to be, you know, part of a thing in Daredevil, you know, with the corrupt Wilson Fisk, what he was doing, so we just really hit it off, and, and Drew is an amazing, amazing guy, really one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but also one of the most brilliant guys you'll ever meet, and, you know, we, he hired us pretty much right away, uh, and we, we started the next week, so... Was it pretty easy to, to kind of write those versions of the characters? Yeah, I mean, Drew had already written the pilot, and it was really you know terrific. And his vision of the characters was, I think, pretty pretty well defined and pretty clear what he wanted. And then there were, um, you know, as we went along, it was just a matter of figuring out how best to get things across. Like one of the things he said early on was, he said, you know, Daredevil in the characters is written as a Catholic and he said, I want the Catholic church in this series to be a positive force. I, you know, he said, we've all seen stories about the problems the Catholic church has had, you know, the child abuse and other types of corruption. And he said, and that's all fine. It's all legitimate, but we, it's been done. And he said, I don't want to do that here. I want it to be a good force in his life. So, you know, Ruth and I made sure that uh, we wrote stuff with him and father Lantham and Ruth, um, studied comparative religion in college, so she came up with some great uh, Bible passages to to um, you know to use in those scenes. And then we had uh, a lot of 
priests on Twitter tweet us and say that is that was the best depiction of, of a priest and a, a priest counseling a parishioner I've ever seen on television. So that that felt nice. Uh, so, you know, I mean, when, when you're working with, with talented people like Drew and Steven, it's it's not that hard to um, follow their lead. You know, the, the showrunners establish the lead, and then you, your job is to, uh, you know, carry that forward and, and bring it out the best way you can. So we tried to do that. How did you uh, get the gig writing Wonder Woman 77? Oh, I had known Christy Quinn, who was the editor on that, uh, since she was at Wildstorm back in the day. And uh, she had approached uh, me and Ruth about writing something together for comics for a while. But Ruth didn't grow up reading comics, and, you know, she she doesn't want to do it just to do it. But one thing she did grow up watch, was watching the Wonder Woman TV show. So she said, if they ever do more of those, I'd love to do one. So I told Christy... And when they decided to do more, she said, you want to do one? And we were like, yeah. So we did it, and it was great fun. Was it easy to kind of capture the energy of the original TV series? Yeah, it was. I mean, when you look at the show, it's unlike the Batman 66, uh, which was being deliberately campy. The Wonder Woman 77 show took itself pretty seriously. Uh, You know, there are things about it you can laugh at, like the mustaches and the, the clothes, but... Um, you know, it took itself, it played it straight and, uh, we, we went with that and, you know, just liking the fact that Wonder Woman is an inspirational character and that, that in the show she had the power to talk to animals, which is something that doesn't come up a lot. So we decided to do a, we, we were looking online about, you know, what sort of things were going on in the world in the late seventies and found out, which we hadn't known that that was really when, uh, poaching of endangered species really went from being sort of an isolated thing that, that random people would do, like random bandits, it, it almost became organized crime. Uh, people, they got, the poachers got much more organized, a lot more firepower, and really started, um, you know, becoming international in scope. So we were like, oh, wow, because that's something we're really concerned about today. So we decided to do a story about that. So, Christos, what can you tell us about the upcoming uh, Civil War II Amazing Spider-Man tie-in? Well, basically, the uh, Amazing Spider-Man Civil War to tie-in covers Spider-Man's sort of personal... Well, let me put it this way. As I think has been announced, uh, Civil War II surrounds the emergence of a new inhuman who has uh, visions of the future. And he predicts events that can happen. Not like everything, but he just has these visions come upon him. And there emerges a debate between uh, sides, Iron Man spearheading one and Captain Marvel the other, about how <clears throat> this this ability should be used. Is it right to um, try to alter the future that's coming? Uh, is it even okay to know what's going to happen? Or by messing with the future, are we messing with fate, the timeline? Are we engaging in unforeseen consequences, the butterfly effect, that type of thing? So, um... Spider-Man, as you know, in the last Civil War, uh, did something fairly rash. He he exposed his uh, secret identity, and even though that's been on, you know, he's removed everyone's memory of it. He, this time around, he he's determined that he's going to make sure he really researches this before he picks a side. So he uh, gets to spend some time with the the Inhuman Ulysses um, and learn about him and you know, get a feel for what he's like and how his powers work. 
and uh, in the process, um, you know, without getting too into spoilers, uh, the main Civil War book is is very large scale, and the Spider-Man book is going to be a bit smaller scale in the sense that it's focused on Parker Industries, New York, and Spider-Man and Ulysses and a few other supporting characters um, at Parker Industries, New York. So uh, that's that's about all I can tell you right now. What is it like writing, you know, a Spider-Man who's definitely a little bit different now that everything's gone through with him having Parker Industries and him being more of a public persona? Well, it's, I mean, I've, I've done some co-writing with Dan Slott in the main book, and it is a little different. I mean, he's still Peter Parker, but he's got a huge position of responsibility. Um, but in this uh, in this miniseries, it's really getting to the core of Peter Parker and who he is I mean his you know on the one hand he's obviously got to look at it from the point of view of hey if I had known what was going to happen to Uncle Ben or Gwen Stacy I could have saved their lives uh, on the other hand he knows better than anyone how about unintended consequences and how those can be um, you know bad those can cause even worse things from happening than what you're trying to stop so uh, it's really about him asking some serious questions now it will come into play the fact that he's now in a position of, of power and with all that power does come added responsibility and uh, Ulysses will make a prediction in the story that he has to decide how to act on so um, that's how his his you know philosophy uh, will be tested okay uh, I just have a, a couple of listener questions before we sign off Okay. Um, first listener as name, goes by the name of Shotzi. Yeah, he wanted to say that your uh, Chuckles story in G.I. Joe Cobra was one of the great character story arcs and character explorations in all of comics history, in his opinion. Uh, can you please share your thoughts, insights, and stories about that run? Uh, first of all, I'm going to take a guess that Shotzi is named after Enemy Ace's pet puppy, who tragically died falling out of his biplane in one of the issues of Star Spangled War Stories. Uh, and if he's not named after that, he should be. Um, but uh, uh, thank you very much for the, the kind words about Cobra. Uh, I have to give a ton of credit to Mike Costa, um, my co-writer on that. Uh, Mike and I made a good team on that book. It was perfect because it played into a lot of the themes we like to write about with Mike is big into guilt, being Catholic. Uh, <laughs> and um, I like writing about characters who are sort of failing to live up to their potential <laughs> or, you know, have always kind of been screw-ups and, you know, uh, like the song says, when you try your best but you don't succeed. Um, that's why I always like writing about Hank Pym. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it sort of hit us in the sweet spot and we enjoyed very much uh, tackling that and especially taking what some people thought were going to be some of the cheesier G.I. Joe Cobra characters and figuring out ways to make them interesting and cool and updated. Um, I personally had an affinity for Crocmaster, and I know that uh, Mike had one for Crystal Ball, and, you know, Serpentor was a big one. Uh, so we, you know, we had a good time with that. Uh, it was great. I ended up uh, leaving when uh, I went Marvel exclusive for a couple of years. Uh, but I look back on it very fondly and still feel it's one of the best things I've been involved in, too. Okay. Uh, next listener question. This is from Muldoon. He asks, uh, how do you feel about the current fate of the Avengers Initiative and Avengers Academy kids? Uh, I don't think anything is going on with them right now. Uh, so, um, 
I don't really feel one way or the other. I mean, they're appearing in some of them are appearing in the Lego Avengers game, which I think is awesome, uh, including Butterball, one of my favorites. <laughs> um, but Striker and Finesse are in there, Reptile, Vale. Um, in the comics, they haven't shown up in, in some time. Uh, I think the last time they showed up, Matt Kent was writing them in, in, in the Inhumanity story. Um, but, you know, it's comics. Anything can happen. I hope someday they'll be brought back and, and used. Uh, but, you know, I get how it is. Like, you you go to work for a company like Marvel or DC and you want to write the characters you grew up with. So a lot of times you see things like, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy revival 20 years after they were introduced uh, or, you know, Nova or, you know, like people in the 70s didn't want to write Nova. They wanted to write Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. Uh, so nowadays, you know, maybe in, maybe in 10 years or so, somebody will be at Marvel who really wants to write the Avengers Academy kids. Or maybe I'll sneak them into something here or there. We'll see. Well, that brings up a question from Century 459 who asked, are there any plans to revisit Avengers Academy? Uh, I'm always up for it. I have not uh, been approached by Marvel to do so, um, but they know where to find me. Uh, so currently no plans. Which of the Avengers Academy kids was kind of your favorite or maybe a surprise favorite that you didn't think would be your favorite? Uh, you know, that's a tough one. I kind of liked all of them. I really enjoyed writing Finesse, because uh, she was probably one of the more evil ones, <laughs> closest to becoming evil. Um, I enjoyed writing Quicksilver. Uh, I enjoyed writing Metal and Hazmat and their relationship. Um, I mean, you know, hopefully whatever character you're writing at the time is your favorite in some way or another. Are there any Avengers Academy stories you wish you could go back and tweak a little? Maybe not, like, change outright, but things that you wish you'd done a little differently? Well, anytime I look at something I've written, I can usually find things that I'd like to tweak or, you know, polish. Uh, I think of better ways I could have said or done something, but, you know, if you spend all your time doing that, you will never look forward and do new stuff, so I don't really think about it too terribly much. Now, besides Civil War II, uh, Amazing Spider-Man, what else do we have to look forward to that you can talk about? Uh, let's see. I've got, well, uh, I wrote some Batman vs. Superman tie-in comics that were associated with Dr. Pepper and I want to, and General Mills cereals. So if you uh, get certain boxes of General, especially marked boxes of General Mills cereal, I have one comic in there. Uh, that's aimed at more younger readers, and then the Dr. Pepper ones are spotlight different characters uh what else my wife ruth and i wrote uh an episode of wonder woman 77 which uh, is great because ruth grew up loving that that show and that it's already out digitally and i believe the collected edition comes out next week um it's like you know like an 80 page giant sized uh collection of several wonder woman 77 stories so i hope people will look out for that it was a lot of fun writing the Linda Carter Wonder Woman. Uh, for those of you who, who don't mind sort of like hardcore, you know, horror violence, uh, I'm writing, uh, there, there's an arc on Crossed Badlands written by me that's currently running. And it's actually two back-to-back stories, I think, lead up to issue 100. Uh, people can always check out The Line of Roar, the graphic novel, the historical epic that Ruth and I wrote. And I'm trying to think what else I can talk about. Rom Space Night coming up, free comic book day. Don't miss Rom, the return of Rom Space Night. That's right. What is it like being able to write that? It's fantastic. I love Rom Space Night. 
Do you think that's also one of those properties that kind of like, as you're saying that, you know, 10 years, 20 years down, everyone wants to do a ROM Space Night story? I think that's that's true because I know a lot of people who are my age in comics and a little bit older, like Bendis is a huge ROM fan. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who were fans growing up. Uh, and same with Micronauts. Um, so, I mean, the, the, you just look at the artists who we've got doing covers for both ROM and Micronauts. It's like J.H. Williams third. Uh, you know, Michael Golden, of course, who was associated with Micronauts first time around in a big way. Um, he did their first 12 issues and a bunch more covers. And, um, of course, we've got Sal Buscema doing a, a ROM variant cover. But it's like, you know, the artists are lining up to um, not just the old school guys who, who, who did ROM in the past, um, but, you know, new artists uh, of today. You know, the younger guys are all like how much they love ROM and and that they, they really want to take a crack at him. So uh, that's I think that reflects the love for the character who hasn't hasn't had a new issue come out in 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fun to both bring him back but also introduce him to a new generation. Now, how did you, how did you kind of get the gig doing that? Because as you said, there's a lot of people out there who would love to work on that character. And then the well, fact that that character is even getting a new book at all is kind of a marvel. It's kind of awesome. And uh, I think the way I, I got the gig was, you know, I had made it clear – like I'm friends with Chris Ryle at IDW uh, on Twitter and we had somehow discussed our love, mutual love of ROM uh, and uh, you know, I think that maybe it was that I was willing to co-write with him uh, share the writing duties um, because of course he's a huge ROM fan and I think he he wasn't going to be able to resist uh, being involved with that himself Um but, you know, I think he felt like we would just make a good team uh, just naturally with our affection for the character that we, we do right by him. Uh, so he, he approached me at San Diego last this past year in 2015. And it's funny because he, he, he said, have you got a minute to talk at San Diego? And I was like, this better be about Ron, just joking, because <laughs> you know, that was sort of my default line, you know. Um, I was like, don't talk to me unless it's about Ron. And this time it was about Ron, so... There you go. There we go. Well, Christos, thank you so much for uh, taking time out today to talk to us. And, My uh, pleasure. And, um, you know, I hope that I'm really looking forward to those books, especially uh, the new ROM. And, um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.